ran off on me. My name is Demetrius. I'm an alcoholic. Cool, cool, cool. Where's Ryan? I'm going to look for the beanie. There it is. All right. Cool, cool. Thanks, Ryan. I'm going to tell you guys, you guys are in, like, uh, good hands. You know, Ryan was, he was basically just made sure I knew everything I was supposed to do. Gave me plenty of reminders, plenty of follow-ups. You know, he gave me plenty of options on the date that uh, I could come. It was like, he's like, oh, that didn't work? I got another one. You know, he's like, so you guys are in really, really good hands. And then the greeting that I got, here's our, okay, let's give Quincy another Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I'm going to tell you guys right now, you know, my sponsees, they pick on me, but they don't, like, they don't have to, like, you know, I get the mic, like, next, you know, like, I can always get them back at any given time. And Quincy is just, like, him and his other AA brother's name is Anthony. They just love picking on me, man. They stand in my in my living room, and they just make fun of me, man, for five minutes. And I'm like, there's going to come a time, you know, I'm going to get you back. So there's a couple of things he left out. So I'm, <laughs> I'll be sure. But back to Ryan and the Laguna Nagel speaker um, family and your secretary. I guess everybody's just, I mean, follow your leader. She's late. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right all right so uh with ryan you know everybody greeted me you know like the greeting was absolutely fabulous so i really really appreciate that it just kind of loosens me up um, i really feel welcome you know, and that energy in the room, it, it creates the atmosphere where we can thrive, where we can connect, where we can grow together, where we can have this shared experience to, to pass on to somebody else. And I'm really, really grateful for that, you know. And uh, I want to thank Corey. You know, I've been sponsoring Corey now it's 14 years. Uh, and um, he came down this week from um Colorado and you know he's I've been sponsoring him a long time and he told me he was moving to Colorado we talked about this process a year before he even left and I was like majorly harboring a resentment I was setting his move up for failure you know I'm like telling him all the reasons I'm like holding him back you know because I'm like I don't want to lose him. Is he going to get another sponsor? You know, what's that going to, what about me? Like, do you know how much you do for me? Yeah, exactly. And so I'm so grateful for um, the relationships with the guys that I have and just um, being, a, you know, having had this transformation to even being willing to share my life with another man and allow them to be a part of my life and share that with you. And the other thing that I'm just like, was so like excited about, like, man, this meeting is filled with newcomers, man. I really want to welcome you guys to Alcoholics Anonymous. And the thing that I want to tell you guys, and I'll stand firm on this, you know, this program absolutely works and it works well. You know, I'm a changed man. You know, I'm not the guy that came to you on February the 7th, 1989, and that's my sobriety day. This program has transformed me. It has turned me into somebody that I didn't even want to be. It turned me into a mark that I looked for if I was outside hustling. <laughs> you know? 
And the guy that I always thought was a chump or was a punk, you know, that was soft, you know, and this, this program has done that for me. And I'm a proud member of my home group. It's the Bellflower Big Book Group. It's a Monday night speaker meeting. We meet at 730. And it's a dynamite group. It's full. It's, it's enthusiastic. You know, we respect traditions. You know, 70, 80% of the people in attendance, it's their home group. And there's a lot of sponsorship within the group. So you see a bunch of people doing the same thing. And for a guy like me, I pride myself of being like, an OG, a rebel, you know, beat to my own drum, do what I want to do. I'm not a leader, you know. I need to follow. And that group uh, allows me the, the space to do that so I could just stay in line. And I'm actively sponsored. I've got a dynamite sponsor. His name is Johnny H. He has this love, respect, and admiration for Alcoholics Anonymous he is busier than I am and he's 93 years old. You know, he's been sober over 63 years and he's 93 years old and he's busier than I am today. And those three things have kept me in good stead. It gives me a, it gives me a fighting chance, you know, because I'm not immune from my illness. You know, I don't have the cure. I'm not cured. You know, I could step off at any given time and just being consistent, having a sobriety date, a home group and a sponsor, it gives me an edge. And I'm grateful for that. And I was taught to share in a general way what it was like, what happened and like, who's the guy that's standing here? And if you be alcoholic, if you're not an imposter, if you're not here looking for friends, it's the holidays and you're lonely, you know, but if you be alcoholic, if you suffer from the same illness that I suffer from, I have no problem sharing with you who the man that I am today, like giving it to you raw and uncut, like the things that paralyzed me with 34 years sober, the things that I still run from today. If you be alcoholic, I have no problem sharing my life with you like really giving it to you raw in hopes that there's some identification that'll get you to go, oh yeah, me too. That'll get you to go to another meeting and that'll encourage you to share your life with somebody else because we winning up in here, you know? Like this is where it's at, you know? Uh, without AA, I ain't got a shot. I'm a loser, that's me. And here's the guy that, that was how I came to you. You know, on the natural, I'm always restless. I'm a little bit irritable and I'm always discontented. And discontented means I'm never fully satisfied. I always want more. I'm always looking for action. I'm not the guy that's just laid back like, oh yeah, that's fine. I'm like, pile it on. Like, what's next? What's next? I'm like, ooh, turn it up to 10. This, can it go any louder? Oh, no, man, step on it, step on it. You got another gear? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm discontented. I'm just never really satisfied. It's like, oh, you know, like, why does that person sit like that? Like, you know, oh, why'd he put that shirt with those pants? Like, what's <laughs> you know, I'm like, yeah, but Lauren, I like your stink. Lauren, right? Lauren, no, with the hat on backwards. 
Nike. Topher. Lauren was up there. Topher, but I like your snake. So, anyway, I, I checked your combo out. Like, the snake was, was matching the lion's jacket. I was like, all right, the Nike pants, the white tee. Like, I would rock that. Like, I, I guess that is so it's like, it's like, <laughs> he's like, he's like, let me move to the back. Episode of Who Word Better. No, so that's me on the natural, right? So my mom, she's one of 11. She was second born. She had nine little brothers and sisters. My father, he, uh, you know, ran around with my mom's brothers growing up. My dad met my mom. They were 19, 18 and 19 when they met. He was 19. She was 18. They got married. She got pregnant. Had my sister at 18, 19. She had me at age 20. My parents are a young couple. My dad's a hustler. He run, run around with her, her uh, brothers. And my mom is this goody-goody, you know, that had already been taking care of nine little brothers and sisters since the day she was basically born. She was second born, had nine little brothers and sisters. My mother's father was an alcoholic. And my pops and my mom set up shop. By the time I was two, three years old, my pops was off to do another prison term. And my mom knew that she didn't want to be that lady that was like sending her old man mail or putting money on his books or sending him packages in prison. She wanted a better life for herself. You know, so my mom set out to raise my sister and myself uh, on her own. And me as a kid, I'm this kid that's always seeking and needing your approval. I'm always demanding and looking for your attention. If I do anything, anything at all that was remotely good or like that seemed like, wow, look what he did. I, I need recognition right away. I want a pat on the back and an attaboy. And an attaboy. I actually would like a parade. You know, I want to be like, oh my God, I, I cannot believe that you did that. And this program has been a process of self-discovery for me. You know, our steps are not only designed to introduce us to this God consciousness of your very, very own, but it's a process of telling you like who you've been rolling with, like who the man you are to the core, not that fake guy that you throw your suit on and you dress it up real well, you keep your car clean, your lawn's perfectly manicured, but you two payments behind on your mortgage. You know, you're not that, not that guy, like the guy who you really are to the core. This is a process of self-discovery and this, and I'm so grateful that the program is designed for me to be honest with myself and some other men. You know, that gives me the opportunity to still grow even at 34 years sober today. You know, and um, so in my house, there's me, my mother, my sister. My mom, she's a hard worker. She's got two jobs. She's going to school at night, my sister, myself, and she would drop us off at a babysitter, which was her mom. And we run around and then she would pick us up late at night when she got out of school and she would make us TV dinners. And then on Saturdays or Sundays, she would uh, try to take us to do something fun. And she was, and my dad was off doing his own thing. 
And me on the natural, I'm the kid that's like always looking for action. I'm five, six years old. I put my little cap guns on. You know, I'm double holstered. I got the cap guns with the double holster, silver guns. I remember with the pearl handles. You know, I got my brown little plastic uh, holsters. I had the fake chaps, the not real leather, but there were these plastic chaps that I could put over my pants. I had plastic cowboy boots I would throw on. And I had this vest that had these shingles that came down from it. I had the cowboy hat and I get fully dressed in my room. I'm my full cowboy issue. And I go to my sister's door and my sister's a do-gooder. She just does the right thing by nature. She's just that type of person. Her room was always perfect. She's in her room, minding her business. She's got her little stuffed animals set around her little tea set. She had a table with like four little chairs. She would sit her stuffed animals up. She'd have fake little tea party going on right here. She had this Barbie townhouse against the back wall. And she's got Barbie standing on the porch of the townhouse. And she's driving Ken up in the Corvette to pick up Barbie for a date. Her bed is over here. It's perfectly manicured. She's the type of kid that wakes up, makes her bed, puts all her stuffed animals and pillows all over her bed. And this is the way. And here's her brother. I come in her door and I kick the door open. Bam! And I let off my pop guns, you know? And they go, plow, 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 plow. I'm like, it's a stick up. And she starts screaming. And she's like, mama, mama. And I knock over the tea set. Ah, give me all your money. And then I'm on her bed and I'm jumping up and down on the bed going, clap, clap, clap. And she's screaming, mama, mama, get me out of here. And my mom be like, leave your sister alone. Go to your room, go to your room. And all I want is some attention. I want somebody to play, but nobody would play my game. So I go back in my room. Cowboy days are over. I get underneath my bed. I got a book of matches and I start striking the matches underneath the bed. I'm pretending I'm Indiana Jones on a walkabout and I'm lighting the fringe on the on the on, on the box spring and it's going up. And I'm just under my room, just minding my business, you know, doing my own thing. And now I'm done with that. And I take out my little evil Knievel, wind up little motorcycle man, and I build a ramp and I'm shooting him out of my window and I'm running around the apartment. And this is all in the span of a half hour. And that, I'm bored with that. Now I'm in my mom's room. It's a Saturday or a Sunday. She's folding towels, just trying to get through the laundry. And I'm jumping on her bed like, mama, mama, watch me do a backflip. And on the natural, I'm always needing your attention, looking for your approval, pushing myself upon you. And you look up and there's smoke coming through my room. And this is long before I had my first drink. That's me on the natural. That's your speaker. And I, want to, <laughs> and I want to tell you guys something now. My mom started dating this guy, and he was a man that I had never seen before. He's like dressed like I'm dressed tonight, and I called him an L7. You hold up an L, you match it with a 7, he was a square. He was the principal <laughs> of this elementary school that my mom had started working at, and they started dating. And... You know, they started going out and the next thing you know, they're getting married and we're moving to this little place called Cerritos. And that's where I grew up. And I instantly had two stepbrothers, a stepsister, a nanny and a stepdad. And I didn't fit in this family. And I'm 11 years old. And I want to tell you guys about my drinking and how it started. My uncle Greg, who is my father's brother, who I just saw on Thanksgiving, has been a mentor my entire life. 
he was always my caretaker because my dad was never really around. And my Uncle Greg started taking me camping in the most beautiful places you could imagine. And he started when I was very, very young. And this time in particular, we always went camping on my Thanksgiving holiday. And this time in particular, I'm in the sixth grade, and he says I could bring a friend. And I take my buddy, Andrew. And every time I get to this part of my talk, I always think about Andrew because he hasn't found us yet. And, you know, it's heartbreaking. And this time in particular, my uncle, my aunt, my uncle had just buried my aunt Ida. And it was the first time. It wasn't just he and I going on this camping trip. I was bringing a friend and he was bringing my aunt. And we went up to Yosemite and we were staying in these little cabins. That first day we go cross country skiing. I have the time of my life. My uncle's a photographer and he takes the most beautiful pictures. And we go cross country skiing. We have lunch out there. And, you know, he gets all the pictures he's looking for. We had the time of our life. And I'm in an element that I had been in since I was three years old. I knew what to do. I had all my camping gear. I was prepared. That night we bed down. The next day he had planned for us snowshoe hiking. And I'm laying in bed. It's 6.30, 7 o'clock at night. We're waking up 4.30 or 5 to get our day started. And I'm not thinking about drinking. And Andrew's just like me. And he's saying, meet, man, meet, let's get into something. I'm like, Andrew, chill, man. Go to bed, man. Tomorrow we're going snowshoe hiking. But he leaves the room and he comes back with a little, like, two or three liter jug of Tyrolia wine. And when he came through the door, I was literally fully in my pajamas, 11-year-old kid, not thinking about drinking. My favorite person in the world, my uncle, is right next door with my beautiful aunt whom they had just gotten married. And I'm thinking about snowshoe hiking the very next day. But when he walked through the door with that um, booze, I was absolutely powerless. And here's how I drink. And it never changed from this day forward. I grabbed the bottle. I'm like, hey, Drew, like, where'd you get it? He was like, I was out walking around. I've seen it outside somebody's tent in the snow. I just grabbed it. I'm like, wow. I sent him to the bathroom. He come back with little Dixie cups. And I remember I cracked the seal. And I poured him some. I poured myself some. And if you're going to party with me, as long as there's plenty, I want to force it upon my fellows. From the very first time, I knew that the mission was to get faded, was to get sloshed, was to get tore up. And I go, drink, Drew. And he takes a drink, and I take a drink. And I pour him another. I pour myself another. And I go, drink, Drew. And he takes a drink, and I take a drink. And here's an 11-year-old kid not thinking about drinking. But when it was presented before me, I was powerless. And it was like I had done this a thousand times, like I knew exactly what to do. And the next thing happens to me. I take out this little Swiss Army knife my uncle had given me. I always wanted a cool nickname like d Loke or D-Money. And I started carving my name in the bedpost. You know, I got a 10-letter name, you know. By the time I got to the, to the T, I was like burnt out, you know. And then we get fully dressed. And I go out with Andrew. And we take... So a six pack of tall cans of Budweiser and we go back to the room and we drink a beer apiece. And here's a guy that was not thinking about drinking. I was fully PJ'd up, but when it was put before me, I was ready to rock and roll. And from that very first time that I drank, I got drunk. From that very first time that I got drunk, I took that little Swiss Army knife that my uncle had given to me on the ride up there as an early Christmas gift. 
And I started slashing people's tires and cutting people's tents. From the first time that I got drunk, I got arrested. And from that very first time that I got arrested, they had court the next day in Yosemite and they had my aunt and my uncle out there and they took me and Andrew out of the cell. We're both handcuffed to each other. They sit us down and they're reading off all the charges and all the vandalism that I had committed. It's the first time that I got that look from the people that loved and adored me. The people that had so many high hopes for me, the people that gave me a strong name because they knew that I was going to mount to something in life and they employed all the resources for me to get there. It's the first time I got that look from my loved ones, that look of like, how could you? And at the age of 11, I looked my aunt and my uncle right back in his face when they gave me that look of disappointment. And I looked him right back in his face like what? And I adopted the attitude of it's my life. And that's how I treated the people that cared about me from that moment forward. And I knew when I got home, was it nothing going to happen to me? Because this L7 square stepfather, what's he going to do? Raise his voice at me? He ain't going to touch me. Because I'm the type of stepson, if you try to discipline me, I'm going to be like, man, I'm going to call my father. And I would threaten him that I'm going to call my father. My, my dad was... He was wild and he would come rolling up to Cerritos and he'd act an ass. And I know what's my mom going to do? She's going to spank me? I'm 11. I'm 12 years old. What's this, how long is the spanking going to last? And when I got home, you know, maybe I was punished for a little while. But to my recollection, I'm riding my bike around the neighborhood the next day. And I'm in, I'm in junior high school. I'm on my way to junior high school at the time. And it starts with the little junior high school party, which is no big deal. And this stepfather had become the principal of my high school. All my brothers and sisters had went to Cerritos High School. And I'm the youngest. And when I make it to Cerritos High School in the ninth grade, they're expecting big things out of me because, you know, they're four for four. Like, your dad's the principal. Like, we can't miss. But they had a whole nother thing coming. And by the time I'm a senior in high school, I have been kicked off of everything. And every time my parents talked to the teachers, they would say, well, he's just a little incorrigible. You know, he kind of beats to his own tomb. He just doesn't follow the rules. He just doesn't work well with others. Only if he would, he doesn't apply himself. He's really, really smart. But if he would try, he, I mean, he's much smarter than his brothers and sisters, you know? But that's who I was. And my senior year, my, I had been kicked off of everything and I started hanging out with these guys we were like the resident losers. We were called the PWBs, the piss wall boys, because we hung around this wall behind the school. And we just drank <laughs> and we peed on the wall. And, and we were literally, that was our crew. We, we, that's what, I was a piss wall boy. I mean, like, if I called up one of them today, I'd be like, you remember the wall? They were like, yeah, the wall. You know? And here's what we thought was an exciting night. Everybody would gather around the wall on like a Friday night and everybody's hanging out, you know, pull up in your cars and just hanging out. And we're drinking. Everybody has a 12 pack. They put it on top of your car. You're just peeling your beers off your 12 pack. And my buddy Steve Sandaha lived like right there along the wall. So we're all hanging. And it gets like a nice little crew, like got like eight cars deep, maybe about 12 people, you know, like. People got beer on top of their car. We look around and like, how much beer is out there? We count like figure it's about 30 bottles of beer. And I'd be like, you'd be like, you want to call the cops? I'm like, yes, yeah, Steve, call it. I never told this story. So Steve would go in the house 
he would dial 911, right? Like, kids are out there drinking again. We would be out there drinking, and, you know, we didn't have a car and be in his driveway, and everybody would, like, knock the beer on the lawn and hop in their car as soon as the cop comes and take off, and we would just hop over the fence. <laughs> so, like, that was our excitement for the night. So, so that's me, right? I'm just a loser. And by the time graduation had rolled around, I had so many detentions. They were like, dude, you're never going to walk. But I, I I was a kid that wound up going in the morning and picking up trash in the afternoon. And, and, and all my brothers and sisters had done quite well. And I show up for my graduation. The night of my graduation, my gowns ripped up the back. I had been in Bosa Chica Beach drinking Bacardi 151. I had lost my cap. And I walk across the stage, and when they hand me my diploma, I stop at the microphone where you're not supposed to stop, and I go, yeah, yeah. And I think everybody's out there just, like, loving it. And I look over at my stepdad, and he gives me that look, like, how could you? And I look at him right back in his face, like, what? Like, it's my life. And when I walked down on the field, all my brothers and sisters were there. My real blood-born father was there. My aunts and uncles were there. My grandparents were there. I had 25, 30 people on the field to witness my graduation. And my mom says, hey, son, you know, we've got cake. We've got food. I prepared a party at the house. All your friends could come. Just come on home. And I'm the type of kid that looked at my mother in her face and be like, what, mom? Like, how could you? Frank's having a two-kegger tonight. Like, no way. Like, how could you do that on my graduation night? And I'm so selfish and self-centered that I couldn't come home for a half hour to be with my family. And I was not raised this way. See, because when I start drinking, this, this life becomes normal to me. You know, I can justify everything that I do. And I'm the type of kid that, oh, you got a card for me? You know, while we're down on the field, you want to take your picture? Like, hey, cheese. Like, oh, what you, you know, my hand's always out. And this is 1985. My oldest brother was at Rice University. My second brother was at University of Texas. My stepsister was at Cal State Fullerton. My bloodborne sister was at UCLA. And if you weren't going to college, my mother had went and gotten her master's. My stepfather had his doctorate. And if you weren't going to college, you weren't standing my parents home and I wasn't self-supporting so I enrolled in a UCLA and for me that's University of Cerritos left on a laundry <laughs> that's Cerritos Junior College and my parents paid they bought me all the books and everything this is 1985 and if you know anything about the 80s it was on and cracking and if you missed it they got movies about it now Yeah, <laughs> you know and I I'm like, how does this even happen to me? And I want to tell you guys what my life looked like in 1986. In 1986, I'm the kid that's running up and down barefoot in Compton. You know, running up and down the street asking for somebody for double up. Barefoot. And how do I wind up in Compton barefoot is because I'm laying on my couch, swearing up and down to myself because I had just went over my other uncle's house, my mother's sister's husband, for the 4th of July. And the whole family made a circle around me. And he was a preacher. And they all prayed for me. 
and I swore I was done. And I went home that day and I'm like, one day passed, two days passed. I never left the house. And I'm sitting on the couch in a tank top and some shorts with no shoes on watching TV. And I can hear Kirk's truck drive down my block and it like it stopped in front of my house. And I knew what he was looking for. And I hadn't done nothing. I hadn't had a drink. I hadn't done nothing in two or three days. And I'm just sitting there, not moving. You see, but I'm so powerless over this alcohol and these drugs. Soon as he hit the gas to drive off, I'm like, I got up and I ran down the street and I'm screaming, like this, running behind his truck. And I saw the brake lights. And Kirk pulls over and I jump in the car. I'm like, what you got? What you, what you, what's going on, man? He's like, man, I got $100. Just make it happen. I'm like, man, it's a freeway. And I'm walking up and down the tracks in Compton. And I wasn't raised to that way. And when I finally did something that's fatal, if you be alcoholic like me, I looked myself in the mirror one day and I looked into my eyes and I wasn't looking at my dried up jerry curl, all the acne all over my, uh, my sunken in cheeks, you know, my skin and bones. I looked myself right in the eyes and I knew what I was. And I said, man, you're nothing like your father. And I'm 19 years old. And this is the first time I got introduced to you folks. And I told my parents and they said they would do whatever for me. But I'm the type of kid that it takes me three or four days to find a treatment center. This is 86, you know, like when medical insurance start paying for treatment, you know. And I went to this place called Sierra Tucson in Tucson, Arizona. And when I went there, I had no intentions of being an alcoholic. I thought I had a problem with this other stuff. I just wanted to get my life right, you know? When I looked at my life and how I understand that fear controlled my life, it's like I never tried nothing. Because as the youngest, I look at all my brothers and sisters straight from high school, straight to college, graduate in a career. Parents, advanced degrees, like where am I gonna start? Like, no, man. My dream, I'm gonna be a dope dealer. That's my dream. And I got introduced to you people and I didn't stay sober from that day forward, but that's where I was introduced to you people. And I came home six months later and I want to tell you guys, I started ripping and running with this organization called the BGF, which is a black gorilla family. And it's a black mafia group. And I'm selling dope out in the Valley with these guys. And I don't even, this is not even my life but I'm fully vested because it became normal to me. And the next thing you know, after I can't, you mean, I can't be a successful dope dealer, you know, I fully fall off. And finally my parents dropped me off at the YMCA in Santa Ana. And my mom says, this is all I can do for you, son. She left her baby there. And I'm the guy that's walking around Santa and I did not walk by a payphone without putting two fingers in the coin slot. I didn't walk by a parked car without jiggling the knob. I'm the guy that's laying in the bushes, drinking a 40 ounce, waiting for you good people to drive up to the ATM 
And depending on how much I had left in my 40 ounces, whether or not you were going to get it over your head or not. And that was my come up. And I'm such a dummy. I do this four nights in a row, right at dark at the same ATM. That's how desperate I am. And luckily for me, I got rescued by the Orange, by the Orange County Sheriff's Department. And in the end, here's what kind of punk I am. I'm a purse snatcher. You know, I always thought I was a jacker. Like, man, I'll jack you. Man, I'm a punk. I'm a purse snatcher. I see you walking into the market. Man, I run up and I snatch your purse. And when I got arrested, they're like, we got you. I'm like, oh. you know, I'm sitting there and they were like, yeah, we got you on a purse snatching in here. We got you a purse snatching in here. You, they, we already identified you here and here. And they gave me the street, the coordinates. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I was never on Bristol. I was never on Maine. I was never on Broadway, but Civic Center. Yeah, that was me. I ratted on my own self. And they set me down for a year in an Orange County um, main jail. And when I got out during near the first or second day I get out, I, 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 I'm, my parents are now living in Lake Forest and I, I smoke some non-habit forming weed, but you know, I couldn't tell them. And my parents start driving me around to these meetings. And I want to tell you guys what happened to me from that moment forward. This meeting is over. And you're going to, what signs do you have? 10 minutes. You have a 10 minute sign? It's 10 minutes now. <laughs> 10 minutes. I, I blame it all on the secretary. You know? <laughs> the one that walked in late. So, so, I'm so, my mom's taking me to Laguna Canyon Club, Anaheim Alano Club, Newport Alano Club. I'm going to the, uh, speak at the meeting right off El Toro Boulevard. She's just driving me, dropping me off at these meetings, dropping me off. And this guy started picking me up from the Anaheim Alano Club, had a meeting on Friday night, and they had a dance afterwards. And this man was like nobody I'd ever hang out with. He was a straight-up cowboy, right? And he would drive, pick me up, drive me clear to Anaheim, and, and we go to the meeting. I want to dance, man. I'm there doing the Roger Rabbit, the Cabbage Patch, <laughs> the Running Man. I'm in it. You know, this guy had the gun rack in the back, the Raggler. The Wranglers, the shirt with the creases, the cowboy shirt. I'm like, I don't know why he's doing this. He's driving me all the way home, drop me off, see you next Friday. I'm like, sure, I'm a taker, man. I need a ride, right? And I'm so he's doing this, and I meet these guys. One day he asked me if I wanted to go to a convention. And I'm like, a convention? He was like, yeah, the SoCal was in Anaheim. And he drives me from we leave the dance we go to this convention and we pull up and i'm walking up with the cowboy and i'm fresh you know i got like a fresh sweatsuit on you know i got my hat just you know sitting on my head you know i got fake chains on fake gold chain you know i got a pager that like don't have service but i kept a fresh battery in my pager my tennis shoes is clean as a whistle and i'm with the cowboy but i can't you know hang out with the cowboy but he walks in he's like this is a convention and when the doors open, they open automatically. When you walk up to them, they just go, shh. It was people just running around. And he goes, all these people are sober. And I mean, it was people running like thousands of people. I'm like, dang. And I'm sitting on this table. I'm eyeballing these two girls. I'm like, yeah, just thinking of which one I'm going to really get at. And I slide over to them, right? 
And I got them both laughing. I'm talking to them. Now all I got to do is choose. I, I'm like, I'm in it. <laughs> and I'm like trying to figure out which one. And then these two guys come walking up in the middle of my conversation and they just lip lock with both of them. They're just kissing them both right in front of me. And I'm like, all right. So I go and I'm sitting on my table again. I'm like, damn, man. And these two guys came over and introduced themselves. One is my best friend, Mark. Um, God bless him. He just had a kidney transplant on Tuesday. His wife was his donor. It's a love story that's out of this world. And my second best friend, Nick, I was in both their weddings. Godfather to Mark's daughter. We've been trudging this road for 34 years. And my first four years, I was a member of another fellowship that I don't mention by name, but the significance and the reason I mention it in those programs were, but Alcoholics Anonymous is not affiliated with anything. And I stayed physically sober for four years, but nothing changed in my life. I was still loud, obnoxious, rude. I fought all the time. No driver's license. If you don't have a driver's license, why bother insurance? Uh, not a job. I didn't need a job because I'm a hustler. You know, I just get out and I make it happen. You know, that's the life that I was living, sober. And I had a sponsor, right? Because if you really want to come up in a meeting, you got to be able to be like, yeah, I got a sponsor. I only had a sponsor so I could share. I have a sponsor when I'm in a meeting so I can catch somebody slipping. And that's how I was living. And as a result of living that way, I was completely insane, physically sober. I'm the type of guy that has to get out of bed at night and do push-ups to tire myself out to go to sleep sober. And I went to my home group, the Bellflower Big Book group, and I met a man. His name was Bob Decker, and I share his first and last name because he's passed on, and he became my very first sponsor. And Bob Decker shared his life with me. And my sponsor was a rider. He was a jacker. He was not a chub. But I saw this man. He had the best smile. His hair was perfectly manicured, golden skin. He wore the shirts with the little horses on them, the docker pants, the shoes with the pennies in them. He looked like shirt tucked in, looked like a square. And this man started sharing his life with me. And what I realized when I came to you guys, I came to you guys, I was absolutely hopeless. You see, I never aspired to be anything because every time I looked to compare myself to what I saw around me, I could never make it. I never wanted to be nothing more than just sober. And I was so tricked up in the game because I thought that sobriety was the answer. I thought I was winning because I'm sober. And Bob encouraged me to take these steps. And I remember when I shared my inventory with him, he told me that I needed God. And I said, Bob, I got God. He was like, no, you need a God of your very, very own. And he introduced me to page 86, 87 in our big book. In our big book. And that's like for dummies. It tells you exactly what to do upon awakening when we retire at night. And he encouraged me to read our 24-hour day book. And I started taking those actions on my knees. And I just started following my sponsor around my home group. And my life started to grow. And I continued on with the steps. And I just followed my sponsor around. And he shared his life with me. And I trusted that man. 
And as a result of him sharing his life with me, it was the very, very first time that I had any hope because I knew where he was the guy that would literally come out of a robbery while his um, wife is in a getaway car, getting jacked by the cops and run off and leave her. He was the type of guy, if he came up on money, he would leave his wife at home with the kids and be gone for a month at a time. And they stayed married. They were, they were sweethearts since they were six years old. And I saw the marriage that they had at that day and time. And as a result of him doing that for me, I started to um, get some power. My life really changed drastically. And it doesn't mean that my life is full without problems. You know, my man that took the year he's, uh, with his heart condition, um, you know, and in 06, I fell dead, full flatline, full-blown heart attack. Like, bam, he's a goner. And his cops came and piled me back to life. And two weeks after that, I had another heart attack. And two weeks after that, I had another heart attack. I had three heart attacks within a month. And this was 2006. I was in a business that was on the front line of our economic meltdown. I was going through a divorce. I was hiding behind images, a coat and a tie. And, you know, this Christian, you know, super dad and everything looked great. You know, but I was suffering. And by now, Johnny is my sponsor and Johnny encourages me to get a little bit more active. And I have to dive deeper into my relationship with God. And I'm grateful that I did because I was able to walk through that experience and grow a deeper bond with the relationship with God and have more self-awareness within myself. And I'm so grateful for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous because I have had the privilege of sponsoring men. And the highlight of these relationships is being able to see their lives grow and see them become willing to share their lives. And that's all that I'm able to do as a sponsor. And if you know me, you know that I have a deep admiration and a deep love for my only seed, my only son, who's 23 years old and he's sitting behind bars. And um, my son's life, his story was written by the time he was 14 years old. His life was absolutely perfect. He was in the advanced academic um, pathways at um, Poly High School, one of the best high schools in the state. He was uh, excelling in football, which was the sport that he had chose. He received his first scholarship after his uh, freshman season. And he was on track to do whatever he decided. And at age 18, he made some terrible decisions. And we've been fighting a case that took place in June of 2018. And when the pandemic hit in 2020, my ex and I decided to bail him out of jail. And he was out on bail. And um, he caught two more felonies while he was out on bail. And I felt responsible. And my sponsor had told me not to bail him. And while he caught those felonies, I bailed him out on those felonies and I had to get him out in four or five hours because, you know, they got wind, they would never. 
I'm running around trying to manage this guy's life and soften his landing. And the last time he got picked up a few years ago, and they, um, I'm in my office. I got a big sales floor. All these guys that I managed, and I got a phone call that all the detectives were taking him away, and I just wanted to make it to the conference room. And I can't even walk from here to that door and I make it halfway and I'm literally on my knees crawling because the pain is so great. And I remember I walked out of my office and I walked into the parking lot and I looked up at the sky and I said, how could you? Like, I've served these, this program. I served these guys. Like, I've done my time. I've been there for my boy. I'm cursing God. Like, how could you do this to me? You know how much service I do, how much I give. And I'm looking across the street, there's a liquor store and I know what takes the big hurt away. And I said, F it, you know, I'm like, yeah. And I'm gonna go grab me a bottle of 151, crack that seal and I'm gonna bluggle, 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 get in my car and see where it takes me. And luckily for me, I picked up the phone and I called my sponsor and he didn't answer the phone. And then I called another friend, who's Rick. And Rick answered the phone. And I'm telling Rick, I'm like, man, it's over. I'm done. And he's trying to talk me off the ledge. And somehow my sponsor just appeared on the phone. And he goes, Demo. I'm like, I'm tired of this. I'm, I'm on my way to the liquor store. I just let you know I'm out. And he says, well, you can do whatever you want to do, but I'm going to ask you, before you do it, will you meet me down at the marina? And I said, I owe you that, Johnny. And I drove to meet this man at the marina. And after we go to this little noon meeting, stop, have some coffee, I literally forgot about the pain that I was in just two or three hours earlier. So I wanna share with you guys that alcohol, yeah, man, it'll settle my stomach. It'll take my pain away to give me the relief that I'm looking for. It'll work. I know it will. But the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is designed to work the exact same way. And this program has given me that reprieve and that relief, and it will do the exact same for you. I promise you that. The only difference is it just takes a little bit longer. And the thing that I want to encourage you guys to do is join us, you know, Be become one of us, you know, find somebody that you can connect with, share your life with them. Build some deep, meaningful relationships with God and everybody about you. That's what our book encourages us to do. Thank you for allowing me to share. Let's thank our speaker, Demetrius, again. has been asked to come up and read the promises and lead us out in the Lord's Prayer. My name is Riley. I'm a great